HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Welcome to Meet in Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. I'm your host and communications director of HRN, Kat Johnson. This week, I need to talk to you about pork. Ever since the sizzling news broke about Chinese tariffs on American pork, I knew we'd have to take a closer look, and we did. Coming up, we've got a deep dive into the tangled relationship between American soybeans and Chinese pork. It's probably not a huge surprise to anyone who knows HRN that we're all very passionate about pork. In fact, our whole team once spent an afternoon debating the perfect level of bacon doneness after we saw Chrissy Teigen's response to a meat company's tweet that inadvertently suggested raw bacon was safe for consumption. We don't have time to get into that debate here, but I did want to kick off this episode with that most beloved food, bacon. Luckily, I happen to know a few experts. Patrick Martins, HRN's founder, is also the founder of Heritage Foods. I love their bacon, and I especially love it in a classic BLT. Right now would be a great time of the year to eat a BLT. That's Ben Tanzel. He's the warehouse manager at Heritage Foods, and his key to making the perfect BLT is to forget the skillet and cook your bacon in the oven. So on a lined baking sheet with a tray... We do that so that the fat can really escape away from the bacon, and it yields a much crispier product. It takes about 20 to 25 minutes for this method, but it really does yield perfect, evenly cooked bacon. If you're short on time, there is another tried and true method. My fiancé likes to cook it in the microwave (laughs) between paper towels. It's funny because I actually, in in Korea, grew up doing that too. (laughs) That's Patty Lee. She's the resident chef at Heritage Foods. What's the reasoning behind the microwave method? Because it gets really crispy. Now, obviously, there are a couple of other key ingredients in a BLT. Beautiful, crispy, non-iceberg lettuce. Just because iceberg lettuce is so lame. And? I really prefer a beautiful heirloom tomato. And then up to you how thick you like it. And mayo, which can be controversial. I suppose it's sort of like an East Coast, West Coast thing. You know, sort of like everything, but I'm from the Midwest, so I grew up on Hellman's. 
And lastly, the bread. And this is where Ben really blew my mind. Since we're baking our bacon in the oven, what about dipping it in the bacon fat and then toasting it in the bacon fat? That sounds genius. Thanks to Ben and Patty for giving me some amazing tips for making a next level BLT this summer. Turning to more hard hitting issues, do you ever wonder why the government uses the phrase legislative pork? We did. So executive director Katie Mosman Wadler launched an investigation. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. I spoke with Katie Kiefer, host of HRN's What Doesn't Kill You and author of What's the Matter with Meat, and Esther Chikinsky, food systems specialist and adjunct professor in the food studies department at NYU. So what exactly does pork mean in a legislative context? As Katie puts it, What it means is that a sub-legislator introduces a project uh, that will directly benefit a small population, uh, typically in his state, but Um, and that is to curry votes or curry uh, future contributions. You may remember the Bridge to Nowhere from 2005, a proposed bridge connecting the small town of Ketchikan, Alaska, to Gavina Island that secured a $223 million congressional earmark. It became a symbol of government pork, spending that only benefited a small constituency. Esther told me about the origin of the term pork barrel politics. This one school thought that believes that it refers to the practice amongst pre-Civil War slave owners of um, awarding slaves a barrel of salt pork as a reward for something and then requiring the slaves to compete amongst themselves to get their share of that pork. The, The term pork barrel refers to a common larder item that was used to store salt pork, and the measure of a family's financial well-being sometimes was keyed into how much pork they had in the barrel, and you knew if you could see the bottom of the barrel that your financial position was was poor. Esther and Katie both recently looked into the 2018 Farm Bill. They each found examples of pork barrel spending. For Esther... The best example I found was the National Corn Growers Association came out supporting the crop insurance provisions in the Farm Bill draft. And that seems to me to be representative of the pork-laden nature of the Farm Bill as a whole, which support commodity crops like corn and soy um, and do not support specialty crops, which are healthier for our diet. As for Katie, she had her eye on some pork pork. There is um, quite a lot of spending proposed that would directly benefit the pork industry, and I think that's a good good example of pork. Um, They are looking for roughly $250 million in spending directed at a foot and mouth disease vaccine, as well as uh, state block grants to pork producing states that would help prevent the spread of the disease. And you could say, well, that's a great use of farm bill money. On the other hand, I am curious as to why American taxpayers should be funding research on a foot and mouth disease vaccine that benefits only uh, the meat industry. I mean, for example, the Tyson bottom line showed a $1.77 billion net income. Now, Tyson is not only in the business of pork, but still, I mean, that's that's almost $2 billion. <laughs> and they can't funnel a lousy $250 million into uh, foot and mouth disease? I don't know. That doesn't seem right that we're paying for that. So that, I thought, was a great example of pork. 
That was Katie Kiefer and Esther Chukinski on Legislative Pork. Stay tuned for future episodes of Meat and 3. We'll be covering the farm bill, pork and all. Coming up next, I'll introduce you to an organization that's putting farmers back to work in my home state of Alabama. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating (laughs) and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind... Check out HRN On Tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Welcome back to Meet in Three. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and this week we're talking pork. For our next story, I take you all the way to my home state of Alabama. You are unlikely to find a group of people more dedicated to the art of pork than Fatback. The Alabama-based organization was co-founded by Nick Pihakis of Jim and Nick's Barbecue. Here he is telling me the origin story of Fatback which took place at the World Championship Barbecue Cooking Contest known as Memphis in May. Donald Link from Koshan Butcher, he and I got together and we wanted to do Memphis in May and we didn't want to use a restaurant name. So we went down to New Orleans and we came up with the name of Fatback Collective. And we went up to compete in Memphis in May, not to win, but to show that you didn't have to alter pork if it's raised right. And we used a heritage breed. And uh, from there, we said, okay, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into what pork really means. Where are the farmers? And so we started investigating, and we went all over Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, we couldn't find a lot of farmers. And so we actually bought a processing plant, and the idea was to put farmers back to work. The processing plant that he's talking about is called the Fatback Abattoir, and it's a top-of-the-line slaughterhouse that offers butchering, wholesale, co-packing, also known as contract packing, and distribution services to its network of farmers. Now that this infrastructure exists, the next step is recruiting more farmers to be a part of Fatback. What does it mean to be a part of Fatback? You must follow the farmer protocol, which outlines several guidelines. All pigs must be Berkshires that eat an all-natural diet, have access to pasture, 
are not given antibiotics or hormones, and are treated humanely. To spread the word about Fatback's mission, Bihackus created the Fatback Collective. Here are pitmasters Rodney Scott and Sam Jones explaining what the collective's all about. Fatback Collective is a group of pretty much riders, chefs, um, entrepreneurs, a group of guys, that pitmasters that come, came together and we decided to travel, learn, teach, and influence people to, you know, cook food, enjoy food, and do whatever they do best. We've shared hotel rooms. We share hotel rooms together, <laughs> yes. These pitmasters, chefs, and restaurateurs play a key role in supporting Fatback and its network of farmers, most crucially through a steady stream of income. For example, Jim and Nick's now has 34 restaurants in seven states. They sell a lot of barbecue, and because they care about the quality of pork they're buying, they're one of Fatback's biggest customers. As Pihakis puts it, It's all about money. <laughs> That's the bottom line, is can we afford it? It takes, you know, the farmer, it takes the pigs, it takes the food, it takes the processor, it takes the delivery, it, it takes the end user, and if you miss one of those links, you miss it. It's almost a safety net to say to the farmers that we can buy this product from you. So you don't have to take a chance, but let's take a chance together. Our final story this week tackles the tangled relationship between American soybeans and Chinese pork. So we've spoken to China and we're in the midst of a very large negotiation We'll see where it takes us. But in the meantime, we're sending a Section 301 action. I'll be signing it right here, right now. On March 22, 2018, in a speech at the White House, President Trump announced tariffs on Chinese aluminum and steel. He did so under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, which allows the president to take any action, including retaliation against another country in an effort to achieve more fair and reciprocal trade. And I will say, the people we're negotiating with, smilingly, they really agree with us. I really believe they cannot believe they've gotten away with this for so long. Well, you probably know what comes next. China will slap tariffs on $3 billion worth of U.S. goods, retaliation against President Trump's duties on foreign steel, and aluminum. Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. The concern here is that a move like this could clearly set off a trade war between the world's two largest economies. Much has been said about why China chose pork and soybeans specifically as targets of new tariffs. Farmers have been big supporters of President Trump, in large part because he's been cutting regulations on their industry. So when the Chinese picked a target that would hurt Trump and his supporters most, they knew exactly where to aim. To learn more about how Chinese tariffs on agricultural products would affect American farmers, I reached out to Bettina Ring, the Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It could result in a lot of food and agricultural products in the domestic marketplace, which will cause the market to respond and lower the prices for everyone. And so we're, we're very concerned. Ag is Virginia's largest private industry, and China is the state's largest foreign export market at nearly $700 million. So part of Secretary Ring's job is to support and reassure those farmers. China is the third largest market uh, for U.S. pork. 
overall. And so if you look at the impact beyond Virginia, it's um, pretty significant, about $1.1 billion annually. $1.1 billion annually. That is a lot of pork. China, they imported in 2016 1.6 million metric tons of pork, which is uh, well above their historical norms. That's Lauren Pewitt. I'm the director of China Ag, which is a market intelligence company. Basically, we focus on the agricultural markets of China. I wanted to speak to Lauren to better understand the economics of U.S.-China agricultural trade. What's interesting is a lot of people talk about the trade deficit between China and the U.S., but when it comes to agricultural products, the U.S. has an actual trade surplus with China. Lauren has been analyzing agricultural markets for 13 years and is based in Taiwan. He gave me some context on the role of pork in the Chinese economy. It's a commodity that um, China itself is looking to increase production in. So perhaps they're seeing these tariffs as as a way to kind of spur their own domestic production. What they haven't done yet, as far as I know, is they haven't imposed extra tariffs on soybeans. Now, that's interesting. Why why would they not have actually uh, started taxing soybeans, uh, but they have started taxing pork? Pork is not critical to the food security of China. And soybeans is one of those products that uh, it's really only a two-person game. It's Brazil and the U.S. Uh, with a little bit from Argentina, but not really. So essentially, for the time being, China is reliant on soybean imports from the U.S. Basically, when you modernize and make your pig farms more efficient, this requires higher quality animal feed because these aren't backyard farmers feeding their pig scraps. These are uh, major agribusiness commercial farms that are looking to have a steady supply of animal feed. Why can't China just grow more soybeans for animal feed? Within the Chinese market, they do produce soybeans, but that goes directly to human consumption because the soybeans that they grow in China are strictly non-GMO. Um, and so they're able to process into you know, like uh, soy sauce, tofu products. Whereas the soybean that's the soybeans that are being imported are genetically modified. Uh, they're crushed into you know for animal feed or processed into cooking oil, and so it's not competing directly with uh, Chinese uh, Chinese supply. At what point do you think we consider this whole situation like a full fledged trade war? Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. It, it would be a trade war if they would somehow do a, a wholesale ban of uh, U.S. soybean exports, and that would be something significant. While we may not be in a trade war, many American farmers are still wary of the ripple effects that tariffs will have. This is Secretary Ring again. Definitely, it's not the end. It's, it's certainly um, the beginning. So if you look at um, the fact that, um, obviously, we're, we're going to have trouble exporting, then those countries, China will be looking to other countries then to supply those products. And so if you look at, for example, as we were trying to expand into the Chinese market as it relates to the fresh fruits and apples in particular, that's going to stall that effort. Um, they'll be looking elsewhere uh, for that product, and it's going to hurt our apple industry in Virginia as well. But for now, it's a bit of a waiting game to see how long it takes for the tariffs to be imposed and what effects they'll ultimately have. Usually it takes years, and if there's a biosecurity or some type of food security component added on top of this, um, you know, it, it could take even longer. We want to make sure that we keep, that we retain the important farmland across the nation, across the Commonwealth of Virginia, 
if we continue to support those farmers, and they have to have support across the board from federal, state, and local government, from nonprofit partners, that we can make sure that we're providing them with the financial and tax incentives that they need to be effective um, and successful in growing the economy, protecting the environment. But we need to make sure, most of all, that they have access to, to markets um, to be able to stay in business. Thanks to Secretary Bettina Ring and Lauren Pewitt. That's it for this week's show. Be sure and save some room on your plate for Meat and 3 every Friday afternoon. Next week, tune in to hear why red tape drives so many restaurateurs crazy. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and review us. Meet in 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Margaret Kelly, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Additional reporting this week by Lila Goldstein, Michaela Heck, and Sarah Strong. Our audio engineer is David Tattashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Get in touch with our team. Write us anytime at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. And tune in next week for a new episode of Meet and 3. We're bringing you stories about the dreaded red tape. Go ahead and subscribe so you never miss an episode. <laughs>